Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. And you're listening to episode four, Barriers to Service. In this episode, I'll be exploring barriers that survivors of color face when trying to access services such as advocacy centers or police reporting. The barriers I'll be covering are mistrusting systems, a history of violence, stereotypes, and dynamics within communities. And of course, we'll be talking about advocacy. I want survivors of color to feel validated because I get how frustrating it can be to continually face barriers when all you're trying to do is seek out support. So I really want to try and help with navigation. In the next series of We Believe You, we'll be going over more barriers to service for other identities. So keep an eye out for that episode. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to be talking to V, a social justice activist on campus, and I'll let V give you an intro later. So before we get started, keep in mind survivors hold many different identities, and you can't separate them. Gender, sexual orientation, and ability are just a few of the other identities survivors of color hold. Remember, we have both marginalized and dominant identities. This means that some identities you hold grant privileges, while other identities create oppressions. For me, I have privilege due to my education, but I feel discrimination due to my gender, sexual orientation, and race. Some individuals hold more marginalized identities than others, and this can add additional barriers for survivors. For example, as a queer woman of color, I face racism, homophobia, and sexism in spaces. Again, I can't separate any of these identities from one another because they're coexisting. I'm not a woman in some spaces, a person of color in other spaces, and then queer in different spaces. I am a queer woman of color in all spaces. Keep the idea of intersectional identities in mind kind of throughout this episode. While people of color face similar barriers, each individual survivor is going to experience barriers and oppression differently. I face different oppressions than my sister, who actually identifies very similarly to me. Just like many other survivors, survivors of color are facing victim blaming, not being believed, being blamed for what has happened to them, and they're also facing racism. And racism affects the way they experience systems and trauma. So let's go back, like way back, and talk about some history. Sometimes people see history as being disconnected from themselves, and that just isn't the case. I know I get really sick and tired of hearing people say, slavery was so long ago and it doesn't matter anymore. Well, that's wrong. Like, so, so very wrong. It matters because it's actually shaping our current reality. History has shaped the way survivors of color experience sexual violence because sexual violence was used as a tool of the oppressor in many communities of color to perpetrate slavery, racism, genocide, and colonization. And what I mean by this is that white society saw people of color as less than and therefore justified their violence. This idea of people of color being less than has been continued in society today and creates barriers for survivors of color. One example of this can be illustrated by a quote by Sarah Deer. Deer identifies as being Native and is a legal scholar, advocate, and activist. She states, context is always crucial. 
Imagine living in a world in which almost every woman you know has been raped. Now, imagine living in a world in which four generations of women and their ancestors have been raped. Now imagine not a single rapist has been prosecuted for these crimes. That dynamic is a reality for many Native women, and thus for some survivors, it can be difficult to separate the more immediate experience of their assault from the larger experience that their people have endured through a history of forced removal, displacement, and destruction. This is such a powerful quote, and every time I read it, it gives me chills because this is literally a reality for so many communities of color. Many communities of color have faced historical sexual violence, and this impacts the way survivors of color experience trauma. It really shows the cumulative impact and relevance of history. The second barrier we're going to discuss is mistrust in systems. So people of color have a long history of oppression that creates this mistrust. Systems uphold and maintain racism. As an example, let's actually take a look at the prison system. So Black and Latinx folks represent 30% of the U.S. population, but they represent almost 60% of people imprisoned. So let's pause for a second and just let those numbers sink in. That is literally double. Black Lives Matter is also currently trying to draw attention to police brutality that communities of color face because black people are three times as likely to be killed by police and actually account for 25% of all police killings last year. But black folks only account for 13% of the population. So again, that number is double. So literally, Black and Latinx folks are being killed and imprisoned by systems at far higher rates than white folks. And stereotypes are a reason why people of color are targeted. And we'll explore this a little bit later in the episode. And know that I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. We know this has been happening to people of color for a long time. I understand why you may not want to talk to the police or why you're super hesitant about reporting. This hesitation that you're feeling is actually coming from a very real place, and it's important that you're validating that feeling. You get to choose how you move forward. Survivors have told me they have seen people in their community destroyed or consumed by the prison system. I have watched my community face racism at the hands of these systems. I mean, I have friends who have had to watch as their family members were deported. I've experienced harassment by police, and I've worked with survivors who have faced harassment as well. I mean, here on campus, survivors are facing racism. When I was recently walking to the bus stop, I saw a student of color walking, and someone I perceived to be a white dude was screaming at her to go back to her country. When I checked in with the student, she said that he was harassing her because he thought she was Muslim. Again, she was just trying to exist and not miss the bus. All of these are examples of racism that people of color continually face, and this weighs on us. And these examples may actually sound super familiar to you, and it's because communities of color are constantly existing in a system that's embedded with racism. It can be hard dealing with racism all the time. It can be challenging figuring out how you want to move forward after an assault. And when you're facing 
both at the same time, it makes seeking out resources feel really overwhelming. So if systems are not going to support survivors and dominant society is telling them that they're less than, this leads a survivor to turn to their community. Communities are a space of empowerment because it's a place where you do not have to explain your identities. You can just exist. But communities can also create tension for a survivor. So know that communities can be a very empowering place and you can also face challenges within your community at the same time. Know that there's a lot we can talk about within communities and I'm definitely not going to be able to cover all of that today. So if this podcast brings up any thoughts or if you want to share any kind of thoughts that you're having with us, please do not hesitate to contact the WGAC. Barriers survivors face within their communities include the perpetrator being a member of that same community, feeling silenced, and the history of sexual violence. Keep in mind that mixed-race individuals such as myself may have a different community experience and may be navigating several communities or facing exclusion from several communities at the same time. And what this really does is it creates more barriers because there's not a space that you feel comfortable in. So let's go through each of these barriers that survivors of color are experiencing. It can be triggering if the perpetrator is in the same community or is well-connected in the community because it makes it hard for survivors to be able to avoid them. We know that sexual violence is usually intraracial. So that means that oftentimes the survivor and the perpetrator identify as being the same race. The exception to this is with Native and Asian communities because their perpetrators identify as being from another racial group. So this means that there's actually a really high chance that perpetrators are in the same community as the survivor. And this can create and turn a community from feeling empowering to feeling really unsafe. Survivors may also hesitate to talk to systems because they don't want another member of their community to face racism. They know and understand very well what that oppression feels like. The next community barrier survivors may face is feeling like they don't have a voice. People of color may feel pressure from within their community to not seek out outside resources because the community may be worried about backlash and racism. Their communities are already deemed as criminals and violent, and survivors may be worried that they're only going to add fuel to this fire by reporting. The last community barrier is the history that people of color have with sexual violence, because as we talked about before, it affects the survivor's community and the way they're experiencing their trauma. There may be many other women in their lives who have experienced violence, and they may have had their voices silenced. It's important to know that each woman did what she needed to in order to survive. They may not have been allowed to share their story at that time, and they may have feel like their voices were silenced. Other women in your life may not have been given the space to heal, and know that your voice matters. Know their voice matters. The experience of your ancestors matter. It's important that we have a community space to heal from generations of trauma. It can be challenging when you can't trust systems, you can't trust dominant society, and now survivors may question how they feel about their own community. This is so much to deal with on top of the sexual violence that they experienced. And this can really lead a survivor to feeling overwhelmed and needing their community more than ever. 
Oftentimes a survivor will choose their community because it can be really hard to deal with racism and trauma without any support at all. The community may not support them as a survivor, but it may be the only space they feel supported as a person of color. And I also really want to point out that communities can be an incredibly powerful healing space. I mean, they've faced hundreds of years of oppression and discrimination, so they've learned to take care of each other because they know the system won't. A question that also comes up within the healing space is, can systems or dominant society even be a healing space when it is literally embedded with racism? And know that that's a very valid question. Remember, healing looks differently for survivors, and there are many different ways to heal. One person that discusses how healing can take place in communities of color is Mia Mingus. She talks about how communities of color have found other ways to find healing and that they don't rely on the system. One of those ways is called transformative justice. She describes it as responding without relying on the state and how we can do this in ways that are transformative and that can actively cultivate the things we need. Things like healing, accountability, community, breaking isolation, and all of those things. Mingus identifies as being a queer, physically disabled Korean woman and is a writer, educator, and community organizer. And she's been able to cultivate this within communities of color. And this is exactly what other communities of color have done in the face of oppression. Stereotypes are another barrier survivors of color can face, and it shapes how the systems view them. Black and Latina women are stereotyped as being promiscuous, and this can lead to victim blaming and not being believed. I've worked with black survivors who have been labeled as aggressive when they're disclosing their experience, and this directly relates back to stereotypes. Asian women are stereotyped as being submissive and passive, and this leads them to being blamed for their assaults. I've worked with Asian students who have been blamed for the assault because they didn't fight back. Black and Latinx men are stereotyped as sexual predators, violent, aggressive, and criminals. Stereotypes of men of color continue to persist today and make it even harder for male survivors to be believed. And it makes it more challenging for survivors of color to seek out resources. I mean, Trump has literally called immigrants from Mexico rapists. I have worked with Muslim students who were told the violence they've experienced was due to their culture. And we know these stereotypes are inaccurate, and what they do is dismiss survivor stories. Remember earlier when we were talking about people of color being disproportionately affected by the prison system? Well, stereotypes are one reason why communities of color are targeted. Racial profiling, stop and frisk, the war on drugs, mandatory minimum sentences, targeted ICE raids. Like, I can literally keep going with all of these stereotypes and how they fueled these things. These stereotypes justify the violence people of color face from systems that include the university, the criminal justice system, and advocacy centers. All right, so as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be doing an interview today, and I have V sitting here with me right now. So I'm just going to ask V a couple of questions before we get started. All right, so first off, thanks for being in here today, V. Yeah. Do you think you could tell the listeners kind of what you do on campus? Because I know that you are super involved here on campus. So <laughs> what I do is I am an inclusive community assistant on campus uh, in residence life. I work in Laurel Village and then I am the liaison 
as an inclusive community assistant to the Pride Resource Center. So I also technically work in there as not a full-time student, but like I'm heavily involved in everything that they do. I am a volunteer on victim assistance team. I also work at the front desk at Laurel Village. And I work for a new student group called SEED, which is students engaging in an empowering dialogue. And that's just doing uh, workshops surrounding uh, social justice and things like that. Nice. That's awesome. I heard you mention that you were a volunteer for the victim assistance team. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that and tell listeners kind of what that means? Um, So victim assistance team is a 365, 24-hour hotline for both primary and secondary survivors and people you take a class for it um, for one semester and the whole thing is your training and then you can decide whether you want to join the hotline or not and you will answer calls from uh, victims of interpersonal violence and give help give them resources it's more like I would say like a crisis hotline more so than like a real like a you're going to get everything you want out of it. It's like if you're panicking, if you're having a flashback or you're struggling with something like in the moment, you can call that number and someone will be there to like talk you through how to calm yourself down and stuff like that. So awesome. Thanks for explaining that to listeners. Mm -hmm. So the next question that I have for you before we really kind of get rolling with the interview is that at the WGC, as you know, that we it's really important to us that we're focused on intersectionality and identities and social justice. So I just wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to talk about some of the salient identities that you hold. Um, so I identify as... I like to call myself Black over uh, African-American. I identify as trans and genderqueer. I don't know. My gender is a void and I don't know what's happening there. But I do know that my pronouns are he, him, his. I probably should have said that earlier. So there's that. And then I identify as a pansexual uh, polyamorous person, which means that I polyamorous, meaning that I'm comfortable with dating more than one person or my partner's dating more than one person and pansexual meaning to me that I don't care about what gender my partner is, which might be different for other pansexual people. But for me, it's just like anybody. Awesome. So now that you all have kind of an understanding of who V is, we're really going to roll into the interview and ask some questions about barriers that survivors of color face. So V, what are kind of, you're so connected to the office and I know you work with a lot of students kind of in your different roles and on the victim assistance team working with survivors. So what are some types of oppressions or barriers that you've seen or heard of that may kind of make survivors of color hesitate when accessing resources? I think the two big things that may affect that are like family and like outside pressure like external pressures so for family I know that for myself like I haven't told my family about any of my traumas or anything like that just because like I can only imagine them like freaking out and and it was years ago so it's like why did you never tell us and there's like that pressure which could apply to anyone but I know that for my family in particular like the person who was my perpetrator, like, was also a person of color. So I did feel that pressure of, like, well, if I say something, like, what if he gets arrested? Like, there's 
police brutality involved. And I felt like I had to deal with it on my own because my family would 10 out of 10 go out of their way to like call the police and do all of these things that I wasn't comfortable with. And so like for my own like taking my own healing as slowly or as quickly as I wanted to, I just kept it to myself really. And then as for like societal pressures, I think that especially for women of color, there's this big idea that they're not like as important as white women or as valuable or when you see media that has like sex workers they're usually women of color and Mm -hmm. like stuff like that and so there's this idea that they're just promiscuous or sexual beings and therefore it's like if you're not then that's a problem and it's like why aren't you doing this and you should be enjoying this and that's So I think that it can be hard to speak out as a result of like those societal pressures and like family pressure and scaredness of like what legal percussions might happen because of me going to the police about it or something along those lines. Yeah. And those are very real pressures and real fears. And I'm really glad that you kind of talked about kind of community and outside resources as well as kind of your own personal feelings because sometimes they can be kind of fighting one another. So I also want to ask you, do you have any advice for survivors of color who are listening right now in terms of ways that maybe they can help navigating those spaces you just talked about? I think that for like on-campus resources, like I recommend calling a victim assistance team just because I think that for me, the the friends of mine that know that I'm a survivor, it was it's like kind of hard to tell someone face to face because you're like, I don't want to cry in front of them or I thought I was over this. And th- those types of feelings might bubble up. And even though it might feel a bit distant to talk to someone over the phone, like it's kind of comforting to not have to put on like a facade of like, I'm strong. Like you don't always have to be strong. Like you can cry over the phone and that person is going to give you space and time. I also think that the WGAC in general is comfortable to be in, like whether you go in there to actually talk to an advocate about what might be going on or if you just hang out in there, like the people in there are really comforting to be around. And the importance of consent in that space is like really important to me. Like people have never touched me in there without ever asking type deal. So I think that that's also something that's really nice. It gives you a lot of like power in what other people do with your body, even if it might be something considered to be positive, like a hug or holding hands or something. That's what I have for on campus. I like will honestly say I don't live I don't live in Fort Collins, so I'm not super familiar with the things that are off campus or around that could be helpful. Yeah, but it really shows the importance of kind of carving out your space Mm -hmm. or finding a place where you kind of can exist and can be. Yeah, I think that like getting sometimes getting any sort of professional help, like going to therapy or counseling can be helpful. But if you it can be really hard if you don't also have that personal touch Mm -hmm. for yourself, like if it's all like someone who is a professional, like trying to help you through it, it can be really hard to feel like you have friends, like actual friends who care about you that much to like stay with you and talk to you like through those times that you're having that trauma because you're not always going to be able to call that. You're not always going to be able to like get to counseling in time. So you like need to have some backups that are much closer to you so that you can make it through your day however you need to. I couldn't agree more. Having different types of support systems is so helpful when healing. 
So that kind of brings us to our next question, which is about healing. So oftentimes we see healing as having to happen in like particular spaces, mm -hmm. like advocacy or like counseling or seeking out kind of system services. And we definitely know that healing can take place in a lot of different spaces. So what are some kind of different spaces that you've been able to find healing in or that you kind of have friends or that have been able to find healing in those spaces? Unfortunately for like anyone who ever overhears my conversations in public, I'm like a person who deals with my suffering through humor. Mm -hmm. So honestly, it's usually like talking about like it could, it may not be the details of my own trauma or like for my friends, it may not be the details of theirs, but it may be something as simple as being like, I, I work here and today this man like flirted with me while I was working and like. I don't know, it felt the same way as when I was assaulted, like what might have happened before that. And this time I like pushed that man away or I like stood up for myself mm -hmm. and like that, like having a potentially triggering um, event happen, like while you're at work or something and being able to say out loud, like, well, this time, like that, it didn't happen again. Like I, I stopped it this time. It felt the same, but I was able to stand up to my own feelings and like say something and be like, you're making me uncomfortable or asking one of my other coworkers to like handle it. Um, I also just feel like it's not something that I joke about often, even though I just said that I deal with it with humor, but it's like, I don't know. When I'm talking about my own trauma, I'm usually smiling and I'm usually like, it sucks. Like, it's like mm -hmm. thing, words that really can't explain it and you know that they can't explain it, mm -hmm. but like, it's all you can do to like connect with other people on it if they're not also survivors. So I think that that's like a main way that I found healing. I also just think that like having hobbies or like, ways to vent really help totally um I have a journal that I keep that I never ever write in but occasionally even if it doesn't have to do with trauma like if I'm just feeling like low self-esteem or something bad happened that day that like makes me feel like gross about myself or like body image I will usually just like write out all of those like horrible things that your brain is making up because it's like you know that you're like that they're not yours and that maybe you're just like not in a good space and you can't help but think about them and the more you push them away then the more they're gonna persist and you're gonna be like I'm lying to myself right now mm -hmm. and so if you give yourself the space to like write those things out and to get them out somehow then you can either I sometimes I keep them and I laugh at them later and I'm like wow that's not true all right mm -hmm. or I rip them out and I throw them away or I rip them up or I do I destroy it in some way awesome. and it doesn't matter if I end up writing the same things over and over I can like I have plenty of paper so <laughs> <laughs> so it, it works out so I think that's also like a personal like not related to other people way that I have um, found my own healing. Mm -hmm. And healing is very personal. So it can be helpful to kind of find those ways in which you feel comfortable or with journaling. And I love that you were talking about like, once you do write those things, that you're going back to that and kind of taking a look at it or going back to that and ripping out that page because you know that that's not kind of the way you want mm -hmm. to feel about yourself. And I think that's really powerful. Thank you. So the last question I wanted to ask you today was, 
kind of talking about the institution of CSU. So we know that CSU is a primarily white institution. So I want to kind of check in with you in terms of what you've noticed when you're navigating the spaces on campus. And this can be kind of around interpersonal trauma, or it can just be like, hey, I'm trying to exist and walk through campus. Mm-hmm. I think that my daily feelings or I'm just trying to exist. I it's something that I struggle with a lot because even though like a lot of people will frame it as like, oh, like I don't have any friends at this like primarily white institution Mm -hmm. or like anything like that. Like honestly I found a lot of like white friends who operate in the same circles that I do, who are supportive who use their privilege to like help me out sometimes in like the smallest of ways like it's never really related to like CSU things but like if we're out and about and something weird happens it's like they're quick to try to to help me out in those ways because I think that a lot of the white people in Fort Collins and around campus sometimes you just don't know. You just don't know how yeah. to interact sometimes. And it can be helpful to have like that one friend who's also white and you're like, yeah, like help me figure out how to navigate this conversation or like help me explain this to this person, what might be wrong. And um, so I think that that's been helpful for me. Um, but on the other hand, I, I have a lot of people like friends of color that I, use as a place to vent for when things do happen on campus for when things do happen like around the world or across America it's like honestly I'm not usually comfortable with talking to white people about it because even though I may trust them and I may trust my white friends sometimes it's just like there there might be like that one thing that they say that you definitely don't agree with or like they're saying it from a place of privilege and you're like you genuinely like I don't have the capacity to explain this to you right now Mm -hmm. and I just need to like talk to someone else who has the same or a very similar experience to mine Mm -hmm. and so I think that also applies for just healing I think that like we talked earlier about how it might be hard to to talk to your family as a person of color or to go to the police or to go somewhere legal to figure it out. And if you have other friends of color who are also survivors, like whether or not you know they're survivors before you tell them that, then like that's a place for that, like that's a support system, mm-hmm. whether or not you know that it's because they're also the same color as you or the same ethnicity or the same religion or that type of thing. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. Like you get very different support from kind of within the community versus different support from allies. Mm -hmm. And like they're both super important and they feel very different. Yeah. And sometimes you can like handle the feeling from ally support. And sometimes you're just like you like not today it's not gonna work (laughs) it's not gonna work out today yeah (laughs) Uh, that's great well I'm glad that you've been able to find both communities because I think that they are both very helpful in different ways yeah well that's kind of all the questions I have for today but I want to give you a chance if there's anything else that you wanted to talk to listeners about or let kind of survivors of color know this is that I feel yeah Yeah. like I I don't know I think that just the SCPS offices in general are like a good resource to go to like it feels really uncomfortable to walk into them the first time whether or not you 
like identify with whatever center you're walking into and it may not look welcoming like I think that a lot of the people who hang out in the WGAC at least in the LSC are people that you could perceive to be white Mm -hmm. and like but they're all gonna be welcoming they're all gonna like to say hi to you when you walk in and like that type of thing and it's I think it's the same for most of the other offices too it's like like i hang out in the asian pacific american cultural center all the time Mm -hmm. and it's like i don't always walk in and know absolutely everyone that i'm talking to but at least the staff or sitting at a table and like joining in into a conversation after being there for a minute like i think that it's a good place to like find a community both with like people who are the same color as you people who are white and people who maybe different colors than you like I'm sure that an Asian American survivor may have a completely different experience than me Mm -hmm. as a black survivor and that is also another type of support like for you to have other than like people who identify the same way as you and people who don't Mm -hmm. and even if someone's kind of identifying differently like they're still holding that same consciousness like we were kind of talking about that I can go and like kick it in different diversity offices and the feeling is still kind of there I also realized that throughout this this questioning I have focused a lot on my own like black identity and I want to note that one that's the one that's the most salient to me mm-hmm. I don't really think about I don't think about my queer identities when I when I'm navigating the world very often because I pass very well as like a female-bodied person. Like I don't, I choose to present femininely um, most of the time, and so on and so forth. But I do know that that one thing that I would definitely mention is that like not all queer relationships are like great and amazing. There is this weird idea on the internet and just in general that like queer relationships are better than heterosexual relationships and that's not always the case like it's just not (laughs) and if if something feels wrong it shouldn't be like well like this is the only other queer person in school or this is the only other queer person that I know so I have to date them or I have to like put up with whatever this whatever might be happening or like those types of things Mm -hmm. and so I think that like that's just something that has been important to me um, after getting more involved with the Pride Resource Center is like hearing the things that people w- will say sometimes about like heterosexual relationships as if they don't happen in queer ones too mm-hmm. and don't don't fall into that myth it's not because yeah. <laughs> it's we know, not a fun time <laughs> right and we know this is like literally happening across all identities mm-hmm. across all communities and that's super important to keep in mind so I'm really glad you brought that up Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today, V. Again, I know that you're super busy here on campus, so I'm really appreciative that you took the time to come in and kind of talk with me today. For sure. So this podcast is about all things advocacy, so let's talk about some of the barriers survivors face within advocacy. Survivors of color may meet with an advocate that does not have a good understanding of identities and culture. This can create barriers in a space that is intended for healing. Many advocacy centers are white women focused and advocates within the facility are most likely middle-aged white women. 
and this includes the WJC here on campus. Two of our three advocates identify as being white women. Of course, this is not true for all facilities, and there are some facilities that offer specific women of color support groups, or they have Spanish-speaking support groups. It's important to understand that allies exist in these spaces, and they can be great support systems. There are some really awesome humans out there doing some amazing work. At the WGAC, we take social justice and identities seriously. We try to incorporate it into everything we do, from advocacy to programming. We think about it when we are planning Take Back the Night, an annual march and speak out in April. We think about social justice when we bring speakers to campus. Even within our center, we are always asking the questions, is intersectionality present in our work? Who's missing from this conversation? And the office is also part of the Student Diversity Programs and Services Cluster. And it's because we understand that intersectionality and inclusivity matter. Even most of our professional development is focused on identities and social justice. It's important to us as an advocacy team that all survivors feel welcome in the space. And like I said before, there are some awesome allies out there. Know that we love feedback. So if there's any ways that we can make our space more inclusive, please give us a shout out. Now let's shift gears and talk about what to do with all of these barriers. It's important to know that there's never a guarantee that any system you're working with will have an understanding of identity or social justice, but there's definitely some things that you can do to help navigate those systems. I have to point out that I don't have all of the answers. I wish I had the answers for 300 plus years of oppression in a criminal justice system that was literally set up to control people of color, but know that when I come up with these answers, I will definitely let you know. But what that means is that there's no quick fix to these barriers because racism runs deep in our systems and society. That's why it's important to allow survivors to decide how they want to move forward or if they even want to seek out resources. If you do choose to interact with systems, know that you have a right to advocate for yourself. Try to resist stereotypes and racism that may come your way. And I know this can be challenging, but being mindful of it can actually be very helpful. It may be a good idea to bring a healthy support system with you, one that gets it, if you know what I mean. No, this is your experience and your story. Don't let systems rush you into anything. You have a right to take your time and decide how you want to move forward. The barriers you face within your community can be the most challenging. Remember that all of your identities are existing together and your voice matters. The hashtag MeToo movement can be a great way to connect to other survivors of color or share your story. The movement was founded in 2006 by Tarana Burke. This movement increases visibility and uplifts the stories of women of color who have survived and healed from sexual violence. So if you're struggling with telling your story, or if you want to connect with other survivors, check this out. Something else that can be helpful to do is check out the website of the university or advocacy center before you go in. Check out the mission statement or framework. Do they talk about identities, social justice, diversity? You have a right to feel validated in the space. For advocacy, ask the advocate about their philosophy in general or their philosophy when they're working with survivors of color. Also, if you don't click with an advocate, see if you can talk to someone else from their office. Take a look around when you go in. Is there social justice or diversity represented symbolically or are all the pictures they have in the office of white people? 
know that this can be misleading. And just because they have something represented symbolically in the office does not mean they necessarily uphold that consciousness. I also recognize that you may not have a choice when interacting with systems. There may be one advocacy center or one detective assigned to these types of cases in your area, and they may not get it. You may face racism when you are seeking out support. Like we talked about, you may be the only person of color in a space, something I know can happen all too frequently. My best advice, have good support systems with you. Know your value. Know that you get to make your own choices and don't internalize any racism or stereotypes that come your way. Ultimately, you know you best and you get to choose if you want to interact with systems and how you want to navigate. Know the things I talked about today are only suggestions and there are many other ways that you can navigate these systems. Which leads me into some tips for someone who is supporting a survivor of color in their life. First, Allow the survivor to make their own choices. There are very real reasons they may choose not to interact with a particular system. Second, know there are many different ways to heal. And third, validate their experiences and identities. If a survivor is telling you they face discrimination from the police or the university is treating them differently because of their race, then that's exactly what happened. Don't minimize their experience. Don't give excuses for the system. Don't say, what I think that person really meant was, or, well, they didn't mean to come across that way. If you find yourself doing this, stop. Do not justify. Do not make excuses. Just be a support system in that moment. Listen, support, and validate. Know if you or a survivor of color in your life has experienced interpersonal trauma, there are some really cool resources out there. Hashtag MeToo is a resource we've already talked about, but I just wanted to put it back on your radar. Insight is another good resource, and I took this description right off their webpage. Insight is a nationwide network of radical feminists of color working to end violence against women, gender nonconforming, and trans people of color, and our communities. We support each other through direct action, critical dialogue, and grassroots organizing. You can check out their website at www.insight/national.org. That's www.insight/national.org. There are also several books and slam poetry pieces that are worth checking out, and know that I've listed them within the description of the podcast. It's important to recognize that we didn't even talk about gender nonconforming and trans folks. We'll be talking more about this in other episodes, but I really want to mention it because gender nonconforming and trans people of color face even higher rates of violence. So to wrap up, remember, it's up to the survivor how they want to move forward after trauma, and there are many kinds of healing. It's important to recognize that gender nonconforming and trans individuals and communities of color, again, face even higher rates of violence. If you are a support system outside of the community, or if you're a part of the community, support the survivors in your life. Let them know you believe them. And if you're a survivor, know your voice matters. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, advocacy resources and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So to reach an advocate, you can call 970 
1-800-242-4242. If you had feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or if you want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email WGC at colostate.edu. That's WGC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgc.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big shout out to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thanks for listening.